Welcome to Sacred Intersections Podcast, where we navigate the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse. I'm Jill. I'm an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA with training in pastoral care and counseling. And I'm Paula. I'm a licensed counselor, a counseling professor, and a person of Christian faith. So as we're getting started, we just wanted to say that Sacred Intersections Podcast is about respectful discussion and conversation to encourage you to think. We're not trying to make you think like us. We just want to make you think that is our agenda. Neither one of us speaks on behalf of the Presbyterian Church USA or other organizations which we may be connected to in our professional lives, nor do we speak on behalf of all mental health care professionals and practitioners, people of faith, Jesus followers, white women, Americans, or people who love and drive Toyotas. We do love and drive Toyotas. Roadies. Jill and I have figured out that there are just so many ways that we're alike that we never even planned. And when we met, we realized we both drove Toyota, very old Toyota RAV4s. So, You'll do. And now Jill drives a fancy, like bigger Toyota. You've got a Highlander now. Yeah. Let's be careful with the word fancy. I am a, I am a preacher, <laughs> but yes, it is a smidge bigger. So as we're getting started, just to let you remind you that Sacred Intersections is a podcast that includes discussion and conversation about religion, spirituality, mental health, and all the ways they intersect. Because we were already having these kinds of conversations, so we decided to record them and share them with you. So we're glad you're along for the journey, even if you're traveling different roads or driving different vehicles than we are. So Jill, we have such a cool episode coming up today. Tell me about it. I am so excited about this. So we are talking about spiritual bypass, which is a concept you've heard us refer to several times on the podcast. We've been promising you an episode coming up. We also have a very special guest that I'm super excited about who you have heard quoted on the podcast that you hear coming through my voice quite often because this is a person who's had a huge influence on me academically and mental health wise, and just, and from a faith perspective, all the different places. So, um, so I may gush a little bit, but I'm really excited to introduce to our roadies, Dr. Craig Cashwell. So yay, yay, Craig Cashwell. So I'm going to let you say a lot of who, whatever you think the roadies should know, but I'm going to go over the official part, Craig, and then you can chime in with with what you think the roadies need to know beyond this. But kind of the official bio part is that um, Craig Cashwell is a professor in the Department of School Psychology and Counselor Education at William & Mary and is an American Counseling Association fellow. Additionally, he maintains a part-time private practice that focuses on couples counseling, addictions counseling, spiritual and religious issues. He has his... CV is very long and very impressive, but he has over 150 publications, including five books, has received multiple research awards. And just to share with the roadies a little bit about Craig's influence, like I, I legitimately don't think I would be here talking about this topic or as interested in this, or certainly wouldn't be the counselor and researcher that I am without Craig. So Craig was my dissertation chair in my doctoral program, which for you non-academics means he basically helped me, helped pull me through my doctoral program. (laughs) 
spent way too much time talking about the topic and reading all my writing and editing and and talking me down off many cliffs and <laughs> making sure that I had to keep going and is just a giant in the field of counseling and spirituality. If you've done any kind of research on how spirituality and religion and mental health show up, you have probably cited a journal article or attended a conference by Dr. Craig Cashwell. So I don't know if you even know this, Craig, so I'm going to give you a chance to talk, but I'm going to talk about you for a little bit longer before I give you a chance to talk. That when the first time I remember meeting you was when I was long before I was a student of yours, and it was at a conference that you and Dr. Scott Young were doing. You were teaching a supervision conference on spirituality and supervision, and the room kind of took a really interesting turn of being really anti-religion. It was a room full of counselors and you were talking about religion and spirituality and counselors. And it was a room full of counselors just talking about how harmful religion had been. And I, that was the first time I kind of remember being super defensive and like, oh, but religion can be really good, but oh, wow, these people are really passionate about this. And that was, that started me on a journey to particular topic of research. So even before I was your student, you were having an influence on me. So good human, just in general, and it's just a real honor to have you on the podcast. So welcome, Dr. Craig Cashwell. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Love the podcast. So it's it's actually a bit surreal to be a part of it today, but I'm very happy to be with you. It's a bit surreal to think about you listening to my podcast. (laughs) It's surreal on both ends. Anything else you think the roadies need to know about your the work that you do or how you wound up on this podcast or how many times you talked to me off the cliff? Well, I, you know, I, I will say that out of everything you said, the pieces that touched me were, um, you know, the, the impact that I had on you because I don't, you know, I don't, I've just been blessed to, to do this work for a long time. And that's why I have lots of presentations and lots of publications and those sorts of things. It's, um, I've been blessed to have good health and a passion for what I do. And, um, but to know that I have an impact on this next generation of counselors, uh, that's what matters to me. So that was very touching. And yeah, I do remember climbing up on a cliff or two uh, <laughs> during the <laughs> dissertation process and having a nice chat with you. And then we wandered down together. So that's part of part of the job. And yeah, you were such a brilliant student, Paula. Come on, it wasn't that much work. So I just mostly stayed out of your way. But uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's enough for now. I've said this to you many times in hopefully a variety of ways, but I do want to say publicly just that in order to do this work, I really needed to have a mentor and someone that I could feel really safe with, both from a professional standpoint and from a faith standpoint, because I knew going in for any new roadies, I um my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation was on the topic of religious abuse and religious harm. And, and just being a person of faith and then diving into that topic knew that there was a lot of potential to, to create some existential issues for me personally, but also wanted to have it in the hands of someone who would be both respectful of my faith, but respectful of the journey and the struggle. And, and also just how do we help clients ultimately, why is this so important and how do we do this in an ethical way? So, so it was really, it was really an honor to work with you in that way and to be able to continue working with you. And I just appreciate, I knew I was in good hands from the beginning. So 
I'm just very grateful for the role you've played and continue to play. I appreciate you saying that. And, and, you know, my response to that is, you know, for all the time that, that academics spend navel gazing and talking about things that don't really matter, this work that you're doing is so critical that to come alongside you and support you through that work, which I knew would make a difference in the lives of people. Um, that's, that's the, the point, you know, that's really what it's about. So yeah, appreciate everything you're saying. So Jill and I have talked a lot about the concept of spiritual bypass. We've tried to give brief explanations when we, when it comes up, because it comes up a lot, doesn't it, Jill? It seems like it just pops up in the, and whenever we are mentioning different ways that religious leaders are, are perhaps engaging in harm. So I have a definition from one of the articles that you wrote about it, but um, so why don't I just read it for our academics to have kind of the official or one official definition, and then would love to just toss it to you, Craig, to, for you to break it down for us. And when we use the term spiritual bypass, both from a clinical perspective and then just what that looks like in the world. So the definition from your article says that spiritual bypass occurs when a person attempts to heal psychological wounds at the spiritual level only and avoids the important, albeit often difficult and painful work at the other levels, including the cognitive, physical, emotional, and interpersonal levels. So what's, what, what the heck does that mean? us what we're talking about today. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I, I've, every time I write on spiritual bypass, I think I define it just a little bit differently because it, you know, my thinking about it continues to evolve. So I think that definition is, is accurate, but it's a little bit incomplete in a way, as I think about it right now and look at the, you know, look at the words myself or and hear you say them. Um, because I think it's really, there's some pieces that are missing. Like, I think it's really important to say it's almost always an unconscious process. It's not a choice that people are making. So they're not aware that they're doing it. Yeah. In most cases, sometimes they become aware. Uh, but most people, when they're sort of actively in bypass, they're not aware of what they're doing. And I also think a word that may be missing in that definition is coping, right? So um, I think when I first started thinking about bypass and, and writing about bypass, I think I was a, a, I climbed up on a pretty high horse and was pretty judgmental about it. I've really come to appreciate that it's a form of coping for people and that we all, um, I don't want to speak for the two of you, but I think all of us who are breathing have, it's at least at some point, if not today, had some maladaptive coping strategies. And so um, I, I think the years have humbled me a bit around that. So I climbed down off my high horse and uh, really appreciate that it's people are trying to survive through whatever they're going through. And it's, it is another coping strategy that um, can become certainly can become maladaptive. The, the word avoid is in the, that definition. I think that's critical. It's an avoidant has this avoidant function. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think that definition is pretty good. I would just add to it a bit. The first time that Paula explained this to me, it, it changed my thinking in so many ways. There are so many stories that gained clarity just by having an understanding of this. Cause it, I, I don't, it, it, the unconsciousness that you mentioned is a huge part of it. Yeah. I, it's the same thing for me, Jill. I, I had a, a, when I first heard the term, I was walking with a colleague of mine at a conference and he used the term and I, I it was a full body experience. It's like <laughs> whatever it was, the Holy spirit saying, uh, correct. <laughs> stay awake, pay attention. You need to think about this. Um, it was really a game changer for me. And I, I, I did what probably most of us do, which is I initially started thinking about people that I had 
known over the years in different faith communities and different uh, spiritual communities. It took me a little longer to realize that I saw this in the mirror as well. We always can see it in other people a little more quickly, uh, I think. But um, but yeah, so that um, so the other thing is from a research standpoint, we've gotten this really kind of cool clarity around it that the the early definitions, which were just based on anecdotal evidence, they kind of hold up um, in research. So we find there are these two components, and this speaks a little bit to what you were just saying, Jill. So there's this tendency to over spiritualize, right? To to spiritualize thing everything, right? And and that's one component of it. And then the other is that psychological avoidance, right? So you overemphasize the spiritual and minimize, diminish, sometimes just deny the psychological. And that's that's what it comes to be. So for our, so we can hear this academic explanation of it, but for our maybe non-academics or just to help clarify this a little bit, can you give us some examples of where you see this show up in clients or anywhere else. Yeah, the story I, I like to share is actually a personal story. So right about the time I was introduced to the concept of spiritual bypass, uh, right around the same time my uh, father passed away, it's been over 20 years now. But I vividly remember standing in the receiving line and appreciating so much the people, you know, receiving lines are such an interesting thing. I'm such an introvert. They're, they're quite dreadful, actually, I think. When 90% of the people in the line, I don't really know very well. Um, but I had such a great appreciation for the people that just gave me a hug, just said, I'm sorry, you know, just such a beautiful thing. But I was struck by how many people used phrases that were actually encouraging spiritual bypass. Um, and it was things like, you know, he's in a better place. He's not suffering anymore. You know, you can be, you can rejoice because he's with God now. And, you know, theologically, I believe all of those things. Medically, I believe those things. <laughs> They're true to me. And I had just lost my father you know, and, and I was deeply saddened and I was grieving and I was hurting. And, and so one form of bypass is um, to avoid emotion in ourselves and to encourage other people. Basically what I think people are saying is I don't know what to say and I'm uncomfortable with your pain. So I'm going to tell you not to have pain. That's essentially how I understand that. So I think when people say those things, they're, they're well-intentioned and, and, maybe theologically sound, but they're, um, but the intent really is to move away from these uncomfortable emotions, either within ourselves or in other people. So I think about it a lot with grief um, is one way that it comes up. So yeah, I'll stop there as far as examples. I've, I've heard in podcasts, you've, you've both used a bunch of examples of this over time. You talk, you talk about whether you name it, uh, you talk about it quite regularly on your show. So yeah, I think what you just said is a really important point that that we want to emphasize that that things can be harmful even when that wasn't the intention for them. And that that we have to, I'm just thinking the semester just started and I, I teach a diversity and counseling class and I just had my first in-person meeting with that last night and going over the rules of how we have these conversations um, kind of assuming the best intent in each other, but also taking responsibility when that intent is not received in the way that we meant it to be. So, so I do think that's an important point. And, and I kind of have to constantly check myself because I, I feel that judgment that you referred to earlier coming up to of, of, you know, people who say, just pray it away or just, um, just ask God to, to take away your desire for alcohol and you won't want to drink anymore. Or, you know, just you won't be depressed if you'll just read your Bible more or or those kind of things. And I I feel the judgment 
in me coming up. And that's just a good reminder, I think, for me and for all of us that that's usually said in a spirit of really trying to be helpful and to provide answers. And and I believe in a God who can do anything. (laughs) And yet that's just not usually the way I've experienced it working. So, yeah. You know, I think for me, I, I think a lot about as a counselor, how do I help people hold the both and rather than the either or? And, and it's not just around spiritual bypass. It's in a lot of things. You know, my, my, my parents did the best they could and they did a lot of damage to me. Both of those things can be true, right? And you'll watch clients kind of go back and forth and vacillate between those two. And it's like, can we hold both of those? Can both of those things be true? And that's, what I, that's the way I think about this, right? Because I see people who are attacking their issues from a psychological standpoint and from cognitive, emotional, interpersonal um, attacks. You know, they're going right at it they don't have any meaning and purpose in their life, right? They don't have any sort of sense of spirituality, which may or may not be connected to an organized religion, but they just don't, they're, they're, they're attacking it. So they're missing the other way, right? They're, they're in sort of psychological bypass. Um, they're so busy trying to fix what they see is wrong with them that they don't, uh, don't look to sort of that, that spiritual dimension in any way. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just incomplete, right? When we do one without the other is incomplete. And so um, that's how I think about it. And so I try to, um, and, and I believe that people do the best that they can, right? So uh, I do think that's a really lovely way to say that. We know that intent may not be malicious, but the impact can be harmful. And that's important. Yeah. So so jumping on the mental health road, you having been a clinician for a very long time and having taught counselors and trained many, many counselors through the years, can you talk just a little bit about how you address this when it shows up in the counseling space and how you tend to any specific modalities you use, or is there anything you want to talk about around that? Yeah. So on the counseling side of things, um, I will, I will tell you, I still wrestle with this and I have some great colleagues that were wrestling with this. The mistake is to attack it. The mistake is to go right at it. Um, because if you think of it as an unconscious defensive coping strategy, we can't just rip that away from somebody. Um, And in many cases, if it's been sort of theologically reinforced and community-based reinforced in their religious community, who am I to walk in and 20 minutes after meeting you, try to strip this away from you, right? You're going to ruin the counseling relationship. I'm going to rack any sense of trust that I might be building up with you. You probably won't come back, right? So there's a very, maybe a very gentle kind of indirect way of doing this. I actually want to say something before that, though. I think it's important. One of the things we're finding in our research now is that short, at least this is how I'm making sense of what we're finding, is that short-term acute spiritual bypass may not be a bad thing. If we're so overwhelmed that we're either going to go into spiritual bypass or we're going to drink again after four years of sobriety, spiritual bypass starts to look like a super good choice. Right. And that's the, when that's the alternative. And so I started out from exactly the place you're talking about, Paula, which is spiritual bypass is a bad thing. It's unhealthy. It's psychologically unhealthy. Anytime anyone engages in spiritual bypass, they're avoiding something that they need to deal with. And I've softened on that a little bit because we found in some research that people who've experienced trauma, who've used spiritual bypass, um, actually had higher levels of post-traumatic growth 
which is kind of an existential spiritual growth that can come out of traumatic experiences. So um, we're still trying to parse that out a little bit. We're doing some interviews, trying to understand it better. But, but that's one thing that I think is important is that when we talk about this, we're talking about this as a, a long-term chronic go-to avoidant coping strategy, right? That's when it clearly becomes psychologically unhealthy. Um, and we see it you know, with some regularity, as you've both talked about. We see it in our religious communities. We see it in the counseling room. Um, so that, that seems an important distinction to make. And we're still trying to understand that better, but that's, that's where my thinking is at today. I could jump in on that for a minute. It just, it makes me think of just the concept of denial and how denial is often kind of disparaged or said, oh, she's just in denial. Like that's a bad thing. But, but truly my understanding of denial and how it's helpful is that it, it's protecting your brain and your heart and your spirit until you're able to take something in. If you're in denial over something, it usually is because you really cannot cope with it yet. And so it's putting it aside. And so it's, that strikes me kind of in a similar way that it's, as you say, in a short term, if it's like having a mantra that if it keeps you from drinking and there's a mantra that you say that keeps you from drinking, that's a great thing. And that gets you through until some of those other coping mechanisms can kick in. Yeah. You know, I think about it. I think a lot um, as a counselor, when I'm in the room with people, I think a lot about the difference between distraction and avoidance. So a distraction is a one-time thing where you kind of like go, okay, I, I can't handle this right now. So I'm going to change what I'm doing to get out of this stuck place that I'm in. That's a good idea. We actually teach that as a skill, right? But avoidance is more of a, of a longer term strategy of I'm just not going to deal with this. I'm not going to deal with my pain. I'm not going to deal with my difficult emotions. I, you know, I will just tell myself I don't have to be afraid. The scripture tells me not to be afraid. Um, it tells me to be slow to anger. So I don't want to. So I'm not going to feel this anger that I feel. That's avoidance because we all feel all of those things. We talked about that previously so well on, on previous podcasts that we're, we're feeling people, we feel all of these things. And when that can flow like a river, we're healthy. When we start damming that up and stopping it, um, it causes maybe more problems. Pro well, I, I would argue it, it causes more problems than, than the feels. You know, if you can let yourself feel those things in healthy ways, you're gonna be much, much healthier psychologically. So, but I think I digress. I, I think I, I, I went off on a little bit of a tangent there. You were asking about working with it. so. Um, so we have to go at it really slowly. And we're actually working on a paper right now that I'm excited about uh, working with a colleague on a paper on um, using something called the stages of change model in working with spiritual bypass. And the short version of that is um, because it's often unconscious, people aren't even thinking about it as a thing, right? They're not thinking about the fact that they're engaging in spiritual bypass. So there's a phase where sometimes just raising awareness and helping people even think about it in this, in some very gentle, very loving, very subtle ways, not in this like sort of harsh psychoeducational way, but just over time sort of helping them see that that's maybe even a thing and see if they can get their, their mind wrapped around it. We talk about that as moving from pre-contemplation to contemplation, not thinking about it to at least just sort of wondering about it, being curious about it a little bit. And so we, we, that might take time for some people and they may, some people may never make that, make that move, but then when they start thinking about it, now you've got a little more opening and you can begin to, to work with it a little more directly. Cause um, again, if you push too hard, they're going to, they, they may, they may push back. Right. We know that. Um, and so uh, we still want to be very gentle and compassionate and honoring this as a coping strategy for them. 
um, and sitting with them in that space where they might move to a place where they decide they want to start doing that differently. That's where people will sometimes hit that point where they go, yeah, I know I've been talking to my pastor about this and that's helpful, but I know I also need to talk to a mental health professional. You'll start to see that pivot kind of, so again, it's, it can be a both and, right? You can get some spiritual direction from your pastor and you can get some mental health counseling. So I think it's something that we wrestle with, but what I find, you know, that judgment that you were talking about, Paula, like I know I know what my version of that is, right? And it's a visceral reaction internal that I can come in a little bit too hot in conversations with people. I can come in too forcefully, too strong, too fast, again, well-intentioned, but because this is a coping strategy for them, now we're in a tug of war where it feels like I'm trying to yank away their coping strategy and they're going to start trying to take it back, right? And people will make lots of arguments about this being theologically sound. This is what they've been taught. This is what they know. And, and that's not a good space to be in, of course, as a counselor with a client. So. so, so many things are coming to mind for me as you're talking, but Jill, I also just see you nodding a lot too. And when I give you the opportunity to jump in if you want to. No, keep, this is like a masterclass for me. I'm so, I'm just fascinating. Yeah. Keep talking. Yeah. No, just to break that down a little bit, you know, the, the stages of change for people who maybe are not familiar with that concept. Um, and hopefully our, our counselors and our counseling students are listening to this. They are, but you know, just the different stages that people go through in, creating change. So there's the pre-contemplation stage that you mentioned where like, it's not even on people's radar. And then there's the contemplation stage where people start to think about it and then there's action. And so, so as you say that, that just, that's such a concrete thing that I think we can all do if we try to take action ourselves before we've even wrapped our brain around it, it doesn't usually work that well. If we try to help our clients take action and do something before they're even like thinking about it in that way, that's just an important reminder not to get ahead of ourselves with that stages. And it, I, I, you've already been touching on it. I definitely want to get into like the ethical pieces of this, of how we are respectful of someone's faith, even when we're noticing that spiritual bypass. I think that's kind of what you've been talking about. And I think what I'm hearing and what I'm just reminded of is that this may be harkens back to, to what you were saying too, of going slow and this being a coping mechanism in a way of we're not dismissing this as something that can be helpful. Like even just thinking about me personally, it is helpful when I am reminded that be still and know that I'm God. Like that is a helpful reminder for me that centers me and that grounds me and that helps me to release control of things sometimes. And so we don't want to deny that that can be important coping. And I also don't want to not take action in my life because I'm sitting back and saying, God's God and God's going to do everything. So, so that was just, that was kind of a few of the things that was going through my mind um, with that. But can you talk a little bit about how we handle the ethics of respecting where someone is, even if we're seeing it as maybe a hindrance for them? Yeah, you know, as you're talking, I was thinking, gosh, aren't um, aren't therapists and, and clergy some of the most narcissistic people in the universe, right? <laughs> because we think we know, right? We think we know. For sure. Um, and uh, uh, so, so there's a humility in the work, right? That I don't know. I don't know, you know, if, if I'm if I'm 30 minutes into a first session and I'm getting the spiritual bypass vibe, I don't know your story. 
And I don't know what you're having to deal with. And I don't know how emotionally dysregulated you get because I don't know what your trauma narrative is. And I don't, you know, I just, I don't know those things. And so there's got to be a starting place of humility of not knowing. And that gets tricky when we have that visceral reaction. Oh, this is spiritual bypass. I, you know, I can help them with this. And then we, then we move at it too quickly. So there's a humility there. But I, I think the other thing is, um, so along with the stages of change, then there's also this idea of motivational interviewing, uh, which is that we support people right where they are. And we, we honor the struggle that they're in, rather than telling them they need to be different. And you know this, Paul, but the key ethical principle behind motivational interviewing is autonomy. So I think as a counselor, and this is, this is hard, um, it's hard for all of us, but as a counselor, I suspect this is true probably for clergy as well. We have to start with a belief that people don't have to change, um, that they, they, have, um, they are empowered to have auto make autonomous decisions. And if they choose to stay in spiritual bypass, now what I hope I can do as a counselor, and this is hard, is I can help that become a more conscious choice for them right? That they're actively consciously choosing this. But I, the second that I get in the lane of, I need you to change. I do a lot of harm as a counselor um, because I'm working way too hard. I'm trying to force something to happen, which may or may not be right for you in this moment. So I think about that a lot when I think about the ethics of any of any of the work that we do um, is that we can get our own ego invested in needing the other person to change and do something different. You know, this comes up for me when I'm sitting with a client and bypass all the time. Like I've been writing about this for 20 years. I know about this. I can help you with it. You know, but that's all ego, right? They still have their pain. They still have their suffering. They're still coping the best way that they know how with what they've been taught, what's been encouraged in their environment um, and what they're dealing with. So that's what I think about from an ethics standpoint is we just, we have to honor this as a coping strategy. That's why when you read that initial definition, I went back to it's coping. Let's make sure we get really clear that this is a coping strategy and people need coping strategies. Yeah. Just that old adage of the client is the expert in their own life, that the counselor is not the expert for someone else's life. And so, you know, I think you said this, but I do want to also just point out that spiritual bypass is something that clients might engage in, or it might have been used in a harmful way towards them. So it might be a way that, that they're coping or using, or it might be, I think what you described in your example, some people coming through that receiving line and saying things to you that were meant to be helpful and may have been experienced as harmful. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of times uh, we learn these things in our families too, right? So um, each of us grew up in a system that taught us how to cope. Um, most of us probably in some good ways and, and some not so good ways, right? That's, that's sort of how families tend to be. Um, but then those of us who grew up in faith communities, I grew up in a, um, a small uh, rural church that I now look back on and go, wow, that was a really theologically a very conservative place. And the work that I do now as a mental health professional would not have been valued in that religious community at all. I would have been deemed a quote unquote secular counselor, uh, which was a bad thing, right? Um, and so, but of course, when you're a kid, you don't know you don't know conservative from progressive, right? I just went to church, right? My family went to church, but I was I remember at about age twelve or thirteen starting to bristle at some of the messages. I think I was already a, a burgeoning mental health professional. I was already starting to think more psychologically oriented. 
probably out of my own trauma narrative. I don't know, but um, you know, I just remember some things not sitting quite right and being inconsistent. And and they those were coming from a lot of them were coming from the pulpit and then being reinforced from from um, other members of the congregation. You know, the, uh, you've, you folks have talked about this on the show before, I know, but I just think it's such an important thing to say that if you ask, if you go into your religious community and you ask somebody how they are, you get fine, blessed, or highly favored, or the three, you know, the, the top answers that I hear. And I go, really? Because, yeah, I've had a lousy week, right? Like, I, my week is stunk, and I'm I'm frustrated, and I'm feeling sad. I might be a little depressed. I might be a little anxious. And honestly, most people in the church don't want to hear that. They want to hear fine, blessed, or highly favored. And so I often think like, gosh, if churches could function more like 12-step meetings, what a what a better world we'd live in where everybody was just real. Like, this is who I am. I screwed up this week. Like, you know, like, uh, and, and, and nobody judged that because they know they've been there too, right? It's, it's all of there, but for the grace of God, go I in this moment because I've been there. And so um, that that lack of support. I mean, my, my largest beef, I, 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 I am religious. I am spiritual. It's very important to me, but my biggest beef with religious communities is their inability to hold space for people in their humanness and in their, and in their, their burden and the ways that they are burdened. I just learned that word recently it comes out of theoretical framework called internal family systems. And we speak of being burdened. And I love that word because it, it says things have happened to us along the way. And this is how we are burdened and the work of therapy is unburdening, right? Is that is what that is what the work is. And so we don't create enough space for our burdens, the ways that we are burdened. Um, and now there are exceptions to that, not casting aspersions on your community, Jill, or anybody else. There are lots yeah. of communities that do this better than others. But boy, my experience by and large is that's where the, the church has a lot of room to grow. We're so busy trying to be perfect for God that we can't be human for one another. Mm. Say it again for the people in the back. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, say that again. <laughs> well, we're so busy trying to be perfect for God, which is, I think, a real distortion of, of um, theology, in my opinion, that we we can't be human for one another. Um, and so, um, and that's, you know, interesting as I say that out loud, it's something kind of came to me spontaneously in the moment. I feel this heavy sadness, right? What a sad, ooh, there's actually emotion there. What a sad statement to say, you know, that we're, we're more, we're trying to impress God so we can't show up for each other. So, yeah, I think, and I think that's a lot of sort of psychologically and theologically what undergirds um, bypass. And the irony that God already knows it all. Like, that's just, all right. That's a great segue to the religion road, Jill. What's, what's coming up for you? So many things. So at the risk of uh, rocking the boat of humility so much of the way that you, Craig, were talking about counselors approaching their clients is so Christ-like. Like Christ meets us where we are. Christ knows our stories and wants to listen to our stories. Christ isn't walking around looking to change people. Like that, that just, there's so much of, of Christ's ministry story, Jesus's ministry story that that mirrors so many of the techniques of meeting people where they are and not coming with the expectation of change and, you know, walking with people through the tough things and, and the, the shift that gets made from, I'm not going to deal with this myself. I'm going to hand it over to God to, I'm going to hand this 
to God and, and have God carry it with me, have God help me shoulder the load. Like that, that's been running through my mind a lot about the ways in which clearly I'm not coming at this from an objective point of view, uh, but for counselors to look just at the, the history of the story of the way that Jesus lived in the world, regardless of how they approach their own faith of just seeing some good examples of a guy who wanted to do good things and approached people in, in a positive way. I think that's, that's huge. That's huge for me. The, the, the thing that I realized early on, as we started recording this episode, Paul and I often joke about finding a, a road metaphor to add another segment to the podcast about um, unhelpful things that people say in an attempt to try and be helpful. And really it's just there. They all, fall in that spiritual bypass box of just things that things people say to excuse the pain or to, to compartmentalize, to, to put, put all the stuff we don't want to deal with in the box. And let's just all, let's just all put it in the, in the God box and deal. And I realized in my ministry early on, I remember preaching a sermon to the current community that I serve about the variety of unhelpful things that people say. And I had somebody come up to me afterwards and say, I, I so see where you're coming from. I believe the phrase that I spent the most time talking about was God won't give you anything you can't handle, (laughs) which when you're in a, for me personally, when I'm in a place where I feel like I can't handle something to think about like whether or not God was responsible for giving me that thing, like just makes me want to say some swear words sometimes, but, um, this parishioner came up and said, I, I see where you're coming from in that. Here's how it's been helpful to me. And just painted a very different picture and a very different story of the ways in which they, that helped them to cope. And that gave them, and it, the way they described it to me, it wasn't a, it, it didn't seem to me like a spiritual bypass excuse or a coping mechanism. It seemed like a very self-aware way of looking at, this is, this is something that has been laid in front of me and this is the way I'm helping to use it to unstick it. So, so just understanding the spectrum of spiritual bypass, that there's not this black and white right or wrong way of, of knowing it, that there's a spectrum and that there are times like with compartmentalization, there are times when compartmentalization, I would imagine can be super duper unhealthy and there are also times when you've got to put some stuff in a box so you can go to work and earn a paycheck and keep a roof over your head. And so sometimes you have to engage in those things. I I love what you say about the authenticity of community and allowing people to be themselves and the power that God meets us where we are and, and God's going to walk with us. I think community religious communities can be a a breeding ground for unhealthy theology or bad theology. And I think that especially comes out in times of crisis or in times of trauma. And sometimes that's fostered by the community. And sometimes that's fostered by a religious leader, someone from the pulpit. And, And sometimes that's just done like with the theology itself of, I've, I think, Paula, we might have a thing for every time you say spiritual bypass, I say proof texting. (laughs) So when someone takes a Bible verse out of context 
and just chooses to make it what they need it to be to say, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One of my favorite coffee mugs says I can do anything with a Bible verse taken out of context. So that, that, those are all of the thoughts that are, are circling around in my mind. Well, you know, guys, there's so much in what you said there, though, Jill. One of the thoughts that comes up for me is one of my favorite Christian teachers is um, uh, James Finley. And Finley says something that I just think is so beautiful. He says, you know, God protects us from nothing, but sustains us through everything. Mm -hmm. And so often this bypass thing, you've talked about it so well in previous episodes, I won't belabor this, but you know, something bad happens to me and there's a belief that it's, I'm being punished for something or my faith is not, you know, Jill, I hear you use that phrase, your faith has made you well. So if I'm not well, I must be lacking in faith. But I think there, you know, sometimes we're given these challenges and struggles, you know, Paul wrote about it, it's the thorn in, in my flesh, right? So we, we're given struggles, we're given difficulties. And so that's not tied to our goodness. In some ways, I think they can be periods of our, our greatest growth, right? Um, that if 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 growth, spiritual growth comes through great love and great suffering, then great suffering is necessary. Um, these hardships. So, I just think about I think about that a lot. So that's a little different reframe for for what you were talking about in terms of you know this is this is really hard, and it can be hard and it can be painful and I can cry and I can be afraid and I can be angry. I can even be angry at God because the God of my understanding is more than big enough to handle my little anger angry outbursts. Uh, it's not blasphemy at all. You know, it's it's like I I scream at God and God gives me a hug and and it's it's fun. You know, so. Um, but so many people grew up with a theology. Well, they, I can't be angry at God. Well, but you are, right? You are. That's what you feel. And that's real. And God's a big God who can certainly handle our anger. Mm -hmm. So I just think there's so many um, layers to that. And I think the other thing that comes up that I'll say, and then I'll stop. And this is coming, this comes from one of the mystics and I don't remember because I tend to read a little bit here and there. So um, if one of you know, please, um, I'm an academic. I should be able to cite my sources, but one of the mystics wrote about imperfect meekness being when we realize that we're burdened would be the language that I would use. We realize that we're human, that we're imperfect, and that's okay, that God loves us just like we are. Mm -hmm. There's a humility that comes out of that, but the mystic, whoever it was, called that imperfect meekness. But perfect meekness comes when we realized how vast the universe and eternity are, and out of that space, we recognize this is a very real problem for me. And yet the world is so much bigger than this. So we kind of take ourselves out of the center of the universe, right? We get, get, get kind of beyond our own ego. And that just rings so true for me that there, there are these two ways I can become more meek. Um, and, and we know that they shall inherit the earth, right? So that seems like that would be a good goal to become more meek. And it's, it's out of that recognition of my, you know, when I stopped trying to be perfect, when I looked at my flaws in therapy, when I began to confess things to other people that I knew I struggled with, it was transformative. It was hugely transformative. And it was an imperfect meekness because I, it was still about me. But when I see myself in the context of eternity and the vastness of God, and I'm not always there, uh, it's work in progress, but then that's where the perfect meekness comes from. So uh, that's just thoughts that, that tri trickled up for me as I was listening to you talk, Joe. It's so interesting. I I think, and I could be wrong, but it sounds a little bit like Julian of Norwich. As, I was reading Julian and Teresa of Avila. So I was like, oh, it's one of the two. <laughs> so. As a mystic. And what's so fascinating to me to hear that is another very famous quote from 
Julian of Norwich, which I have in multiple spaces in my office and my home is all will be well and all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things shall be well. So it's interesting to think about that phrasing, which is a bit of a mantra, a bit of a calming, but could also be a form of a little bit of bypass compared with that, that spectrum is there with what you were saying about that, that imperfect meekness and the ways in which of looking at the world and the universe as a whole, while also holding all will be well and all will be well and all will be well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That, that, um, that is prominently positioned in places where I bump into it as well in both my office and home. So yeah, I'm a big fan. I, I think too, you know, we, we tend to see things um, and, and part of the, part of what I think as we have those at least glimpses of perfect meekness, we see that time is such a human construct. And when we look at it in the context of eternity, you know, this, this, it's, this, even this whole conversation is a blink of an eye, you know, it just, it's such, uh, such a small piece of time. But of course, we get wrapped around time, right? And why is why is this not happening now? Why is why is why am I having to stay burdened in this way for so long? And I think it's Teilhard de Chardin who said, "Above all else, trust in the slow work of God." And I sometimes think I'd like to add the word "damn it" to the end of that. You can edit out the profanity if you need to. But, you know, because it's like, "Above all else, trust in the slow work of God." I don't like it, but I but I but I kind of get it. You know, like things are not happening on my time frame. And God's ways are not our ways. And there's a lot of mystery here, um, things that I, I don't um, understand. So, Yeah, as I'm hearing both of you talk, I'm just, I'm, I'm loving it. And I'm just grappling with how just this, this tension between the truth of all will be well and all will be well and all will be well and not spiritually bypassing in a way that's harmful. And I think just how I'm trying to wrap my brain around it is what's coming up for me is just that, 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 that is like an undergirding, that that is like a truth that is a foundational truth for me. That is it's, it's true. No matter what the circumstances are that I can believe that. And that can be truly comforting to me. And I can believe that a loved one who has died is in heaven and in a better place. And that can be comforting to me. And that can be foundational. And there's reality and day-to-day grief and day-to-day things that are not well right now that I have to cope with. And I don't know, that's how I'm kind of grasping with, with how I can let both of those things sit in the same space. I think it's, yeah, it's interesting, right? Julian didn't say all shall feel well, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, right? Cause some all of it is says, well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that the idea that, that, that God can, if we can surrender to God in the experience of our struggle, right. And know that God is, is no less present, right. I think the belief system that people can get caught up in is God is with me when I'm joyful and, and feeling blessed and life is easy, but God is absent when I'm not. I'm like, well, that's not the God of my understanding. God is very present for me, much more present. All I have to do is just silently say the word God and breathe into my heart space when I'm struggling. And God is very present in that space. So I, I think there's maybe a distorted belief there for some people that God is God is is AWOL. And, and you know, if you grew up in a family where you had a lot of early trauma around abandonment, then you're going to project that onto God. God's not there for me, right? So people come to that quite that distortion quite honestly. I realized I was saying that in a slightly less than compassionate way. And I actually feel much more compassion about that than I was sort of saying there. But 
Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, um, is, is our suffering bad? Uh, I don't know that it is. Um, uh, if we think about the ultimate self suffering on the cross, it was necessary, right, for transformation to happen. And so our, our own suffering can be, um, you know, our, our version of that. Yeah. And, and I think if, if we go back to like where and why this is harmful is when it shifts over into being dismissive of that suffering or being dismissive of that real pain and that, that those seemingly trite statements, which are not really all that trite and their deep meaning underneath it can be comforting as long as they're not used in a way that is meant to dismiss or to to bypass just to transition. I know we were already on the religion road and maybe kind of connecting in those roadblocks too. looking at some ways that some religious systems can in, can really use this concept in a harmful way. So any thoughts really from either one of you about like, what are those roadblocks? What are some things or theologies or statements that pastors or church systems are using that are, maybe intentionally or unintentionally using spiritual bypass in a harmful way. Yeah, gosh, there's, I think there's so many, we're doing interviews right now with um, religious leaders in different religious traditions uh, because we think, and it seems to be um, borne out that this, this is, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian system. I saw this in a Christian system. I didn't think that we own the copyright to spiritual bypass, but I didn't really have a feel for how it showed up in other traditions, but we're saying, yes, you know, there's, there's research now that says it shows up in among Muslims. It shows up in the Hindu community. We're seeing it there. We're starting to do conversations now with other religious leaders. The, the term was actually coined by John Wellwood, who was a Buddhist psychologist and he saw it in meditators. So it actually originated within a Buddhist tradition. Um, so um, it, it more and more starts to look like, yeah, this is this is a this is a struggle, a sort of a universal struggle across wisdom traditions, and they all have some way of either challenging it or or encouraging it, um, depending on leaders and communities. Um, so I, I think the you know I, I could maybe come up with a few examples that we've heard in doing these interviews, but I think for me there's a higher level thing, which is if if you are in a position of spiritual authority. Do you believe that the psychological and the spiritual needs to be integrated um, for one to be whole? That's kind of a baseline, right? And so if you believe that, then, you know, we see lots of clergy who are, um, uh, the term was put in the counseling literature decades ago now, friendly, friendly clergy, and what that really meant, not that they were nice people, but that they were amenable to mental health services, right? Um, that they were open to recognizing that they had a very critical role in people's lives and that there were, there were limits to what they could provide. And so they would refer people out for counseling and they would refer people out for um, psychological evaluations and medication evaluations and that those all had a place. But if you start with the premise that it is solely a spiritual problem, then you actually not only don't buy into the psychological work, you aggressively attack it, right? Because you're, you've got, I love um, Brian McLaren's another writer that I like, and he talks about bias in this really eloquent way. And he talks about complexity bias. And it's so applicable here that we prefer a simple lie to a complicated truth. And, you know, if you have a history, your, your story is complicated. And the work of unearthing that and digging through that and healing that, it's complicated. 
And so the simple lie that you can pray it away or the simple lie that if you are, that, that you can be more faithful and you will be delivered from this, that you will be well. And like you, Paula, I believe in miracles. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, And I also, it's, 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 that's the, that's the struggle, right? Because the truth is that this is very complicated and may take years of hard, painful work sometimes to work through. It is hard work to do the work of healing that particularly in cases of trauma that people, the work that people have to do is hard Mm -hmm. um, and very painful because part of the work, regardless of how you approach trauma, part of the work is at least starting to bring up those stories again, right? However much you work with the stories, how much you work with the body, how much you work with the brain, um, how much you work with coping strategies, there are lots of different ways to go at it, but, but it's all complicated. So we just tend to hang on to that, um, that uh, simple lie that this is solely a spiritual problem. And again, I think it's both and. It is spiritual and psychological. We can find great comfort in knowing, Joe, you say it so well, that there is a God who loves us exactly like we are today. There's just no condition put on it, right? Um, and, and, and it's, so, well, I'll stop. I could start gushing there because that's, that's really important to me theologically. But that's not a space that I think a lot of um, people at an individual level, but some churches at a corporate level sit um, that God loves us, um, period. Put a period on that side. Yeah, man, this idea of us preferring a simple lie over the complicated truth, that is the story of our world in so many ways. And, and I know you're going to, you want to jump in, Jill. I just want, don't want to lose this thought too, that what you said about only at the spiritual and not at the psychological or the cognitive or, or any of those other places. And what I would hope from pastors is to see that the spiritual can be in the psychological, like to, that that can be in the, the cognitive place. I, you know, I believe that God is in my counseling sessions and that, that what I'm doing is out of my calling. And so, so not kind of even parceling that out and seeing it as a threat that, that that's, that there, that is one of the biggest roadblocks that some pastors see any outside help such as counseling or medicine or anything as a threat. Yeah. You know, I agree with you completely. And I would add the other side of that. There are, um, Unfortunately, mental health professionals who are, I think, particularly insensitive to the religious and spiritual beliefs of, um, of those they serve. So it gets, I think, the, I think this relationship gets damaged on both sides. Um, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I echo what, you, what you're just saying, what both of you have said. Anytime a religious community, whether it be the community itself or the the people with authority in that community, the preacher, the, the religious leader is trying to limit when they're, whether they're trying to limit your understanding of scripture, whether they're trying to limit your understanding of truth, whether they're trying to limit your under, uh, limit the ways, the questions that you ask or the doubts that you might have, or how you would define God when there's limits placed on that. That's a, that's a roadblock for me because there has to be space and room for figuring it out. And, and hopefully there's the belief that God's or the divine is with you and helping you figure that out. But the thought that, I have to be the person as a religious leader who's going to define your truth for you. I have to be the person who is going to define what God looks like for you. I mean, there, there are hierarchical systems 
in Christianity and outside of Christianity, wherein there, there is a hierarchy to God in which, and a religious leader is legit closer to God than a, a lay person. That's, that's not my personal belief. And I sort of cringe at that thought, but uh, the, the roadblock that I have all the understanding with the, the narcissism uh, is is a roadblock in in that we've got it all figured out when there's a period instead of an ellipsis at the end of end of the sentence or the opportunity to think more. I think that's a, a big roadblock. And I, I guess the other roadblock we've already touched on a, a number of times is when God is used as an answer or an explanation and not a, a part of the process with us. If if the answer or the explanation is God, I'm not altogether sure that that's the the best way to to dig into pain or probably, you know, oh, God must have given me this pain or, or I have this pain because I'm not in right relationship with God. Anytime that God is used in, in a sort of limiting way, that just doesn't, that's a big roadblock for me. I, I, I agree with that, Jill. You know, one of the things I think about is like a, a phrase you'll hear people say a lot is, well, it was God's will. Mm. Um, but what's interesting there is, is, is I'm curious about what a person's doing with that phrase, right? Because we can use that phrase to accept what is, to accept all that is, right? So I could say it's God's will. It hurts. I'm in a lot of pain right now. And I still trust that it's God's will. And I can feel all those things and I can have all my experiences and, and move through them and not get stuck in them, right? Because I'm, I'm having those experiences, but often um, it's used as a bypass phrase, right? Well, it's, well, it's God's will, right? It's God's will that my dad died when he did. So I should be grateful for God's will and not be sad. And, and and see, that's that's the the function of that is really, I think the phrase, it is what it is, is very similar, right? So sometimes it's an, a phrase of acceptance and sometimes it's a phrase of avoidance. Yeah. And one thing you said, Jill, too, that that struck me was, you know, when a pastor is saying, I have all the answers or all you can find all the answers here in, in church. And I think certainly many times that can be driven by narcissism or can be very ego driven. And it can also be that unintentional, you know, a pastor might just feel pressure to provide an answer. It might be done in a, in a caring, well-intentioned, you're in pain. I want to lessen your pain. Here's something I can say that might be helpful to you. Counselors do it too. We want to, we, we want to fix rather than be with you in your pain, those kind of things. So, so a lot of it's just continuous examination from counselors and from religious leaders about Am I feeling pressured to have the easy answer to be able to provide some comfort for this parishioner or for this client in that way? And I think if we, if we carry that out, if we are going, it's almost like going for that quick fix of, can I make you feel better in the moment, but not be with you through the whole process, then it can become an empty promise from a pastor. You know, if a pastor says, just trust God and you'll feel better. And you you're trusting God in the best way, you know, and yet you're not feeling better. I think that can have a snowball effect of harm of creating this existential crisis down the road of, you know, well, I trust a God and I don't feel better. And so there must not be a God or God's not good or any of those other things that come up with that. So I think it can be a short-term dismissal of pain and then a long-term just creating a deconstructing 
thing that might not be done in the healthiest way. I just want to say, uh, and I say this from a, a Jesus follower point of view. So, but roadies, if, if you hear any, if you hear you're doing it wrong, if you hear you don't have enough faith, if you hear your, your prayers aren't answered, you're doing it wrong. I promise you, you're not like, I promise you, God loves you more than you recognize. Just, I just want you to hear that. I promise you that God loves you more than you'll ever be able to recognize. Always, always the pastor, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will also say my greatest existential crisis came as a result of spiritual bypass. So I've shared the story of, of my partner struggling with epilepsy and being encouraged to, to call out Jesus name and doing so and, and him continuing to seize and us ending up in the hospital together. And, and that sparked a pretty massive existential crisis for me, which is, I will say having an existential crisis might not disrupt work for some people, but when you're in the line of religious work and you have an existential crisis, it makes it a little hard to do your job. It shouldn't. That's another, that's another podcast for another day, but yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I, I don't think you know this, Paula. I was, I thought I, I might be called to the ministry. And then when I was in an undergrad in college, I dated my pastor's daughter for a couple of years and the relationship didn't make it, but I knew there was no way in the world I could do pulpit ministry after I, I, uh, <laughs> I saw how they made the sausage and they was like, nope, <laughs> no, no, no. Not for me. So I, I have a deep appreciation for what you're saying about the complexity of the work that you do and, and admiration of the work that you do. Yeah. I, I do think that there is a chapter in every seminarian or divinity school student's life where they say to them, like in their schooling, where they go, yeah, no, I'm not going to do parish ministry. I'm just going to get my PhD and go on in academia. Like there's, there's definitely that I had that chapter. I'm sure many, many, many of my peers had that chapter too of like, yeah, no, we're not going to go in this direction necessarily, but, um, yeah. Well, so often the function of the job almost seems like it is to, to spiritually bypass, to just be the one to always have your spiritual life together and that everything's fine and that God's got it and that God's in control and that you're not allowed to struggle as a religious leader. When we all know that, well, I know that you're human, Jill. I don't know if everyone else knows. That you're <laughs> Stop <human>. it. <laughs> but I know, I know every pastor I've ever had is definitely human, but we, you know, some of that is, is driven by the pastor, but a lot of that's driven by the system too, that we, we put these religious leaders up on pedestals and really expect them to be able to have those answers for us. Yeah. You saying power and control leads to, to our thought about you know, who's driving and for, for all of the times and and frustrations that we talk about the ways that the churches or religious communities and systems sometimes get it wrong. And I'm justice is important to me. And so I'm always looking at systems. I will say one of the things that I really love and appreciate about the Presbyterian church USA is that I am expected as a religious leader in a real, in a parish community not to offer more than three counseling sessions to my parishioners before referring them to another professional. And that being built into the system is such a great starting point to know I don't have the power to fix this for somebody in three sessions. I don't have the power to 
to do this and the invitation and the honoring of there are other people that God can bring into this person's life to come alongside them, to help them deal with the spiritual and the psychological and the physical and the emotional and all of those things put together. And that's, there are plenty of times when systems work against what's good. And that's one of the times where I feel like taking some power and allowing it to be shared among a community is a really, that's good job. PCUSA. I appreciate that about them. I appreciate that about my training because it reminds me that I can't do it all by myself. And I'm so grateful for, uh, the, the religious, other religious professionals and other mental health professionals that I've been able to sort of team up with and learn and get to know and the relationships that I've built in the communities where I've served to be able to say, this is the limits to my expertise. Why don't I recommend that you see this wonderful counselor, um, and sort of help alongside that process as well. Yeah. As you're saying that I'm thinking back about that, that phrase friendly clergy that I used earlier. Um, it might be good for churches to have, um, know who the friendly counselors are, right? The, the therapists who are com- compassionate and sensitive to diverse religious and spiritual beliefs. Um, and and it, at the very least, not anti-religious, right? Because there are those counselors who are and therapists who are very anti-religion. Um, Freud got us started with some pretty strong language 150 years ago, 40 years ago. And um, some of that is still very alive and well. And I think they're, they're really looking at the caricature of like, if you see someone in spiritual bypass, that's not psychological health, psychologically healthy. It's also not a, an authentic spiritual path, right? So there's just, uh, the, there's that, that view of that caricature that then gets overgeneralized, I think. So, um, because as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, that's absolutely true. And we've got to have mental health professionals who are culturally competent with many facets of culture, but one of them being religion and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we, we operate from a place of cultural humility. Um, yeah, that's, that's something I think we don't talk about on this segment a lot, this who's driving part in those issues of power control. I think we do maybe offer an unbalanced critique to the church of not, of trying to maintain that control and trying to do everything in house and not being trusting of other systems to help. But, but thank you for that reminder, Craig, of that that needs to go both ways. And from the counseling end, we also need to not try to control everything and to recognize the importance that religious systems play in people's lives too, and to cultivate that relationship between the systems. I've had a really positive experience wherein a parishioner came to see me and said, I've been working with my Uh, my counselor on a number of things and I have some faith issues and my counselor did not feel equipped to help me with those faith issues. So she encouraged me to come and talk to you about it. And I was so, I was honored to be invited into that journey, but that I, that was the, that's, it's only happened to me once, but it was a positive thing to be able to be a part of that team of, of people and, and props to the person who came to see me and talked about it in that way. And props to the mental health practitioner that, offered that invitation because it, it helped me learn so much. I'll, I'll tell you my version of that. I routinely with highly religious clients, I routinely uh, ask for written permission to talk to their clergy member um, and um, just sort of check in with them about sort of how, but it where in cases where there is a theological component. So I had a client, for example, who said they had stopped <clears throat> praying because there's a they had, um, scripture out of context passage in Psalms that said, God doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked. 
He saw himself as wicked, so he stopped praying, right? Now, I could work with that in counseling, certainly, but how much more powerful would it be if this clergy member who had had such an influence in his life for so long would sit down with him and say, God knows every word on your tongue before you say it, right? That's also in the Psalms, right? Um, and so, um, so what, I'm, and what I'm doing, honestly, is I'm checking to see, is this a clergy member like Jill? who's going to say, God loves you, and God hears every word, and has heard every word you will ever say, right? Or is it someone who's going to say, well, you need to get your life right so that God will hear your prayers, because I don't want to refer them back to that clergyman, right? Because they're going to do more shaming and more psychological damage. So I'm actually on the, on the down low, I'm kind of doing a little evaluation of, is this a clergy that I think is going to be able to help them? And, and, and the vast majority of them can and do and will, but I don't want to push them back to their clergy if there's someone who's still stuck in that place of, no, this is purely a purely a spiritual issue and is actually going to be encouraging spiritual bypass. The other place of just kind of being in control that, that I was thinking of is how sometimes spiritual bypass can be a way of us trying to maintain control. You know, when we make God our genie in a bottle and, you know, God's going to, God's going to make it okay, or God's going to come and, and, and grant this wish of making this relationship better just because I pray about it, or God's gonna, um, you know, take away my pain just because I pray about it. And that it helps us, it it gives us a sense of control if we feel like we can control God in that way. And so I think that's another place that, that who's driving road shows up a little bit. I do think like, I think more and more that, um, and I do a lot of couples counseling that when I watch people try to manage other people, they're really trying to manage their inner world um, in some way. And I think the same thing is true with God, right? We're trying to manage our inner world by trying to manage God in that way. Not to You're it. so smart. Well, I've had a lot of people teach me a lot of things over the years. And they're usually not people that we would call teachers. They're clients, they're students, um, all of their students who teach their, who teach their teacher. Um, so, yeah, I just, uh, I've never stopped learning. So I get taught a lot. But... <laughs> All right. So we've already done some road rages, but this is our road rage segment. Anything that is, I've got some that I just want to rant a little bit, but do it, do it. (laughs) Well, I just, you know, the, the thing that gets me going underneath all of this is just when this idea is used to dismiss people's pain and, you know, and helping people heal from pain is what I feel like I've been called to do in the world. So when I see people dismiss people who are hurting, and I just always go back to, you know, with the death of Lazarus and when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, he knew what he was about to do. He knew that he was about to make everything. Okay. He knew he was about to to do that genie in a bottle thing and snap his fingers and Lazarus was going to come out. And he still wept, you know, that famous, Jesus wept. He still saw that people were in pain and didn't dismiss that pain and didn't say, Oh, stop crying. I'm about to fix it. He was like, ah, oh, this hurts and I'm going to hurt with you. And so, yeah, I think just that, that dismissal and that I just referred to the genie in a bottle, but yeah, just stop treating God like our genie in a bottle. What rages y'all got? Same. Same. Like and I said this earlier, when God's used as an answer or an explanation and not uh, an answer and not an explanation that there's, there's a limiting to it. I think just like, like Craig was saying that desire for simple lie over complicated truth, we, and I might argue particularly Americans and particularly white people 
really, really struggle with messy and complicated and paradox and mystery. We would like for things to be tidy and well explained. Presbyterian Church USA loves that phrase, decent and in order. And it's hard for people to just embrace the mystery of God, of not knowing what that is and not having an answer. And so and that's a big part of what God is, is a mystery that we're not going to be able to understand. So that and, and also leaning too heavily on the divinity of God and getting so, so far away from the humanity of Jesus. For me as a Jesus follower, I really, really love the Jesus that weeps and the Jesus that uh, needs to get in the boat and get away from people because his introvert self is tarred. And the Jesus that sometimes says the wrong thing to a woman who's asking for crumbs or, you know, uses the, the full spectrum of vocabulary, vocabulary made available to him and turns tables over. And like that humanity of Jesus is important to me. And when we get too far from that, that worries me, concerns me. Yeah, I, I love that, Jill. I, I was um, just before you said tossing tables at the end, I was thinking, oh, yeah, and throw some tables over too, right? There's anger there. And not everyone would agree with this theologically, but my read of let not this cup pass from me is fear, right? That there was your very real fear, maybe even terror at what was what was to come, uh, which is um, very human, right? So I agree with that. My, I think my um, rage that I would add to that, I love all of that, what you both of you just said is, you know, maybe a, a decade or so ago, I don't remember exactly when, I, I realized I had, I had heard the patience of Job a million times, but I'd never really studied Job. And so I was um, co-teaching a Sunday school class at the time. So I said, let's do Job, let's go into it. And what I was so struck by was, you know, once um, everything horrible had happened to Job and he went and sat on the, you know, the, basically the garbage pile outside of town, and his friends came and at first they just sat with him in silence. And I was, the counselor to me was kind of going, oh, that's nice. They just worked, they were just there with him. And then they started talking and they screwed it up. So to me, Job is, yeah, Job is a book about the patience of Job, but it's a book about what not to say to people in pain. Because you read those first few, the first cha few chapters of each time that his friends would start talking to him. It's like, no, that's not it. That is not how you help people. So my rage is when, and a lot of it, if you read it through a spiritual bypass lens, a lot of it was spiritual bypass. Mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was very much that. And so um, I think that's my rage is I know how people are hurt by that. It's not just not helped, right? It's not just that, that, that those kinds of phrases are not helpful. They actually do harm. Um, and so I, I find myself getting um, some road rage over that. That leads me to a U-turn a that I would hope for, and I don't want to get too far from, from road rage if you have more to add, but empathy is, is a, a, on, the, on the spectrum of understanding and, and living with and interacting with spiritual bypass, the work of empathy is so important. And I roll my eyes at Job's friends. Uh, down here, I'm I'm a transplanted Southerner, but I have learned the great use of the phrase "bless their hearts." Bless their hearts, those friends that were trying to do good. And I think we've held this up as a resource before, Paula. But there's a really wonderful greeting card author. Uh, her name's Emily McDowell, who writes. Uh, she wrote a book called "There's No Good Card for This," and it's it's a way that she uses her 
greeting card business to help people learn the practice of empathy. So rather than being a friend of Job, rather than saying the things that are meant to be helpful, but end up being harmful, she offers the phrase, there's no good card for this. Or when people, when people come to you and say, life is a marathon, not a sprint, maybe they forget how much you hate running. Like that's my favorite one of just the ways in which she invites people into the work of practicing empathy, which is a really important thing. And that's something that that we learn from the human side of Jesus and I think is a, is a great way to pivot away from what's not helpful in that practice of empathy. Yeah. I think that idea that there's no good card for this is a different way of, of a U-turn that I had been thinking of, of it's a different way of saying, I don't know what to say right now and I don't know what you need, but I'm here. And if we could, that's a U-turn, if we could just do that for each other, you know, because so often we're trying to say the right thing and we get so paralyzed by not knowing what the right thing is that we don't do anything. You know, I hear so many people who are grieving, talk about just feeling alone. And I think that happens because people are so scared. They're going to cause more pain that they don't say anything at all, or they don't reach out to someone. And so, so even just that scripting of, I don't know what to say but I'm going to say something and I'm here and it may be the wrong thing, but I want you to know I'm here. So just being willing to, to reach out to each other and other U-turns are things that we say a lot, but just to emphasize that we would love to see churches emphasizing, talking about mental health issues, encouraging people to seek treatment from the pulpit and conversations with your, each other. And if you're in a position of power in a church, um, normalizing help seeking behaviors, things like that. Any new terms coming up for you, Craig? Uh, well, I think just to, just to, um, maybe just an amen to what you just said. Um, <clears throat> I'm thinking about how, like more recently, I've been thinking about tox- this phrase toxic positivity that's come up mm-hmm. um, and how that shows up in the church and how that's sort of the opposite of what we need. So the U-turn would be away from that. Again, you know, my thought is if 12-step communities um, if that flavor was what churches look like, oh, just how much more beautiful church would be where we could all be real and human and imperfect and burdened um, and loved right through that. So yeah, that's what comes, comes up for me there. Yeah, that toxic positivity, that's a nice segue to our billboards, which is where we're seeing this topic come up in in pop culture or in current events and things like that. And Jill has been on me forever to watch the show Ted Lasso and Craig has not seen it yet, but it's on his radar too. And so part of what I've been wondering as I've been binging it the last few days is, is like, is this toxic positivity or it, and I don't think it is, and I won't spoil it for anyone who's watching it. It is a a tirelessly optimistic main character who is just trying to win people over and constantly reframing things. But there's an authenticity to it that is not present in toxic positivity. You know, toxic positivity is is almost pretending like everything's okay when it's not and that dismissal of that pain. And, And so I would, I think that Ted Lasso is an example of positivity, but without without the toxic piece. Where we've seen, where I feel like I've seen spiritual bypass show up is, you know, I won't name names, but I think we, we see televangelists who really try to, who have the easy answers as their entire brand, rather than the struggle, rather than having those 
sayings about all is well, all is well as a foundation, having that be just kind of the entire message without the, the depth that I think Jesus answers. I think back to sitcom, sitcom endings, especially sitcoms on when I was growing up, when they would take these really heavy things and wrap them up by the end of 30 minutes and like, okay, everything's well now. And there, there is a little bit of that, that conditions us to think that, that major problems have, can have simple endings or simple answers when, when they, they usually don't any billboards on y'all's minds. I think about thoughts and prayers, which we've talked about before, but just that, just the way that phrase gets tossed out thoughts and prayers and the, the way in which it's sort of a, a social media post or a, a line that gets tossed out at a community meeting or something like that. And then, okay, I'm che- I've checked the box. I've, I've offered my prayers for everybody in the path of hurricane Ida. Let's move on. Like, and then forgotten. And it's not, there's not a authenticity behind it, but that's just, again, I'm just going to throw that in the God box and move on. It can be damaging. Yeah. And that doesn't mean thoughts and prayers are bad. It just means Truth. sometimes we need to add some action behind that or some legislation behind that or some money behind that or some empathy behind that or using our power in a positive way behind that. So, so yeah, I think one of the terms is slacktivism where like, we're going to throw something up on social media and feel like we're active that we're being an activist, but it's really just literally the least we could do. <laughs> Thing you want to add to this? Yeah, I mean, the, thing I'm, <clears throat> the thing that's coming up as I listen to both of you is anything that sort of says, um, and I literally see this on billboards, that there's um, that the path to heaven is an up there and out there path. It's an afterlife. And that's where God lives. Whereas I think the, you know, to go back to the mystics a bit, they teach us that the path to God is a path of descendants into our own selves, right? And that we can't fully experience a loving God until we really know ourselves better. And so that's why I think these two, um, two pieces, the spirituality and the psychology so naturally go together that as we know ourselves better, um, then we are able to fully be present, all of us um, before God and the experience and the encounter of God. So there's something about that disembodied spirituality to, to do the right thing to get to heaven, right? That's the, the, the all of life is an exit strategy for the, for the next one. That's a little bit problematic, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe in heaven, but I think God's got work for me to do here too. And that I don't have to wait till I get to heaven to, to get to know God and meet God and spend time with God for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would uh, maybe, maybe to clarify, I do too. I believe in a, in a very literal heaven and um, it's life is not just an exit strategy. Well, what an amazing conversation this has been. So let's, let's put it in park. What, what are our wrap up thoughts? Maybe I'll go and then Jill and then Craig will let you have the last spiritual bypass word before we wrap up the day. But so I, as I said earlier, believe in a God who can perform miracles and can do anything. And that also gives us resources like counselors and pastors and friends and, and doesn't expect us to just use him as a genie in a bottle to just make things better. That gives us tools we can use in the struggle. So Jill, how are you putting in park today? 
just want to uh, invite and encourage each other, uh, uh, the, the three of us and our roadies and, and the world to, to seek authenticity, to seek authentic community, seek a place where you are welcomed to be yourself and know that God is in that seeking with you and that there God is big enough to handle any question, any doubt, any struggle and shoulder those, those burdens with you and that you're not doing it wrong. What strikes me, I, I um, maybe paraphrase the words of Jesus in the gospel of Thomas, where um, he's quoted as saying that if you bring forward what is within you, it, it will heal you. And if you don't bring forward what is within you, it will kill you. And I think that's the essence of what we're talking about, of being all that we are, because the scripture doesn't say if you bring forth the pretty shiny parts of you, um, if you bring all of it forward, which means we have to know it ourselves, right? Before we can, before I can share it with a, another person or with God, although God already knows, um, I have to know it myself. So yeah, that's what comes up for me now. Yeah. Bring it to the light. That's, that's good stuff. Well, Craig, thank you so much for being yes. with us today. Thank you. Thank you. It just, it has been an honor to welcome you into this little space of ours and to hear your wisdom and you're just always very grounding and and I just learn so much every conversation with you but I love when we can have these really intentional conversations so thank you for taking the time to do this for us and for sharing your wisdom with us and all of our roadies yeah well thank you for um you know the opportunity to share this space with the two of you I so deeply admire the work that you're doing and how you're helping people more important than what you're doing, the impact that it's having um, in, in a much, you know, you're worldwide now, you've gone global, I understand. And so you're, you're touching minds and hearts and souls all over the world. So thanks for letting me be a small part of that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there's an open invitation. I think our roadies will want to hear from you again. So we will definitely, I think, be having you back on down the road. And so roadies, if you are enjoying what you hear, we really hope that you have subscribed and that you're following us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Sacred Intersections Podcast and on Twitter at Sacred Pod. We would love it so much if you would leave a review for us on Apple Podcast or anywhere else that you're listening um, or if you would share our episodes on social media and just spread the word. If you think that other people could be helped by hearing anything that you've heard, what else, Jill? If you want to be in touch with us, if you want to communicate with us outside of social media, we've got a website, sacredintersectionspodcast.com. You can email us sacredintersectionspodcast at gmail.com. And we've had the chance to meet some roadies in real life. And it's been, it's been so, so fun. lovely. So we're really grateful for, for this little space and this community. And we really love it when you reach out to us and we get to hear from you, whether it's in, in real life or uh, digitally. So thanks for reaching out for us. And we look forward to, to hearing from you. Yep. We're grateful for all of you. So safe travels through all your sacred intersections throughout the week. Woohoo!